This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Maggie Cool. I'm Director of Research Communications at the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and today we are discussing the topic that is dominating the news and most of our lives these days, the coronavirus. Um, if you tuned in hoping to hear a discussion instead on what we originally planned to focus on today, environmental factors related to Parkinson's, uh, please know that we will cover that in a future webinar, so stay tuned for more on that. But um, today we wanna talk about the coronavirus and before I introduce our our expert panel, I just want to um, answer the question that we've been getting constantly, which is, are people with Parkinson's at higher risk of coronavirus? And the answer is right now, there's no reason to believe that Parkinson's itself raises the risk of the coronavirus. We'll talk much more about this, but I just wanted to start off making that statement. So let's jump in. And today we're going to cover what we do know about the virus and how it could affect people with PD, um, how social distancing might help prevent the spread, and what we can do to manage the challenges both of this medically and of this social isolation time that we all find ourselves in. We're also in the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Research, so we want to touch on the potential impact on Parkinson's studies and our ongoing efforts to find new treatments and a cure for this disease. Um, I'm honored to introduce an amazing panel today. Uh, I'm really grateful for them all taking their time to share with us their expertise today. We have um, Dave Aronoff from Vanderbilt University who leads their Division of Infectious Diseases. Uh, Dr. Aronoff, thanks for being on today. It's a pleasure. And we have Katie Lever from Mount Sinai in New York. She's a movement disorder specialist who sees patients and practices research, and she'll be sharing with us her experiences. Um, Hi, Dr. Lever. Thanks for joining us as well. Happy to be here. Great. And um, Carly Tanner is um, on the other coast, another hot spot of the virus um, in San Francisco. She is a professor of neurology at UCSF and director of the Parkinson Center at the San Francisco uh, Veterans Affairs. Um, She also sees patients and her research covers a wide range um, of Parkinson's uh, therapies and understanding, including the epidemiology and the genetics of the disease. So Dr. Tanner, thanks for being on today. Oh, thanks very much. I'm I'm really pleased to be able to be here. We're we're very, very glad you could join us as well. And uh, Ted Thompson from our team, he leads our public policy department and He'll talk to us a bit about what the government is doing in response to this virus and some of the modifications that could help provide care and medications to people with PD. Hi, Ted. Thanks for being on today. Glad to be here. Thank you. All right. So uh, let's start with what we do know about the virus. Um, Dr. Aronoff, why don't you just give us kind of a lay of the land of what we're facing with this disease today? 
Sure, I'd be happy to. And again, it's an honor to to be able to participate. I think uh, this is really an active, moving target, and there's a lot we know, but there's a whole lot we don't know. This is a small virus, and it causes respiratory infections. We're most concerned when it causes pneumonia, and it generally will cause a cough and sometimes shortness of breath, fever. But in the vast majority of people who get infected, it, it really is a pretty mild self-limited illness. Right now, we think there have been over 200,000 cases documented across the world, um, and a small but significant number of, of patients have had severe illness, and as we're hearing in the news, some have died. So it's a really striking spectrum of uh, symptoms, ranging from really nearly asymptomatic to kind of a nuisance to putting people into the hospital, to killing people. And so uh, that, coupled with the fact that it seems to be very transmissible, uh, we've seen it all, we're all watching the news and watching the internet, and here's something that cropped up really at the beginning of the year that is now global. It's really what we call a pandemic. Um, has also been striking, and uh, it's been a, a, a great opportunity to see how public health systems respond, how scientists and the public and the healthcare sector can communicate in real time. Uh, and I think it's really testing a lot of those systems in ways that we're going to learn from and hopefully continue to improve public health as a result. Um, you said that the disease is very transmissible, and I do want to talk about that for a minute, but first I wanted to focus on the vulnerable populations. You said that the response to the infection can vary wildly. So what do we know about who could perhaps have a more serious uh, response to the illness, and what does that mean for them? What are these vulnerable populations? Yeah, again, a really good question, and what we're learning uh, particularly from the experience in China and South Korea and Italy, uh, is that anybody of any age is susceptible to getting infected by this coronavirus. As far as we know, this is the first time this particular coronavirus has been in human populations, so we don't know a lot about how it behaves. Um, but those who are getting more severe illness, needing to be hospitalized, developing pneumonia, or even requiring mechanical ventilation, tend to be older adults among our populations. So once people get above the age of 60, it seems that in and of itself, and we don't really understand fully why this is the case, but it seems that being on the older age range of the spectrum is a major risk factor for uh, having more severe disease than being young. It, it's increasingly apparent that even young children can get symptomatic disease, but when we look at a risk factor for severity, age right now is uh, perhaps the most important. What we're also learning, though, is that people who have medical health problems that compromise their immune systems also seem to be at increased risk for severe disease. So imagine patients who are undergoing chemotherapy, for example, for cancer, or people who have received organ transplants or bone marrow transplants. Uh, even some metabolic disorders, the most common being diabetes, 
seems to be a risk factor for having worse outcomes. So um, perhaps not surprising, but young, healthy people seem to be the most resistant to getting severe disease, and older or more chronically ill or immunocompromised populations seem to be at increased risk. And we'll, we'll talk a bit about this um, more on the next slide, but a lot of people are asking if people with Parkinson's disease fall into those immunocompromised groups. I mentioned you didn't include them in your list, but Dr. Tanner, what do you know about the potential risk for the Parkinson's population of contracting uh, COVID-19? Yeah, so um, as far as I know, there's nothing particular about having Parkinson's disease that makes people especially vulnerable. Um, many people with Parkinson's disease are in the age at risk, and it is a chronic illness, and it does affect uh, other kinds of ways of functioning. So I think it is sort of prudent to take precautions and think of oneself if you have Parkinson's as being someone who should take special care. But I'm, I'm not aware of any particular reason that people with Parkinson's per se uh, should be singled out. And Dr. Tanner, sticking with you, I received a question from someone who'd registered asking how to know if the symptoms are from Parkinson's or from coronavirus. And looking at this list, it doesn't seem like they overlap much, but can you comment on that? Yes, I think that's right. Um, Parkinson's disease symptoms really don't overlap with symptoms of uh, coronavirus, uh, which are really, you know, the cough, shortness of breath. Uh, I'll leave that to Dr. Aronoff to, to outline everything, but um, those aren't typical Parkinson's sim symptoms. Um, some people who have certain uh, features of Parkinson's, that, for example, make it harder to swallow, um, you know, might want to be particularly thoughtful um, because that that could be something that leads to coughing. And so uh, thinking about your usual day-to-day -day symptoms compared to anything different, but I think especially fever um, would be a signal that um, this would be something to pay attention to because this is not Parkinson's disease. But I defer a little bit to Dr. Aronoff if he has additional comments. Uh, this is, yeah, David Aronoff. I completely agree. I think the main issue with this particular infection is that it's causing new cough or new shortness of breath and sometimes fever uh, and can be associated with things like sore throat or muscle aches and pains and fatigue. And uh, for people who um, have Parkinson's disease, these would these would generally be different from their normal symptoms and would really represent a new problem. Understood. Um, Dr. Aronoff, question for you. Um, as I said, you shared that this is pretty transmissible. Can you say more about how the virus spreads and how we might test for it? I think that's a, a big concern in the population is that there's not enough tests. There's not a way to be easily tested, as you'd said, there's an asymptomatic period or perhaps your entire uh, duration with the disease. So you could be carrying it. So um, in addition to how it spreads and where we are with testing, and then Ted, I'd love to bring you into and hear what the government's doing about that. So um, Dr. Aronoff, why don't you kick us off, please? Yeah, so this is a virus that is spread 
through uh, respiratory droplets, which are generally disseminated when we sneeze or cough. So symptoms are really an important driver of transmitting the disease. But even small respiratory droplets come out of our mouth when we talk to people or breathe heavily, laughing, etc. Um, we think that people who have no symptoms don't have as much virus coming out when they talk or uh, uh, or are interacting with people than someone who clearly has a, a deep cough. So symptoms are, are probably very important for driving the airborne transmission. Uh, and we think the range of that transmission is about six feet. And that's why you may have heard in your communities to try to space yourself from others uh, about six feet apart. But the, the other thing that we're learning about this is that the virus itself can stay infectious for hours to days even on surfaces, uh, tables, doorknobs, and of course, hands and faces. And so that's where we've really been trying to emphasize cultural changes around social distancing and using good, good hand hygiene, um, and trying not to engage in the usual greetings of direct handshakes or uh, kisses on the cheeks or hugs, um, but to think more creatively about ways to greet people that don't involve physical contact. Um, and, and the reason hand hygiene is so important is because we think that people, well, we know, I'm certainly a victim of this, that people inadvertently touch their face, touch their eyes, touch their mouth, touch their nose during the course of a day. And so limiting that really does make a difference in terms of limiting transmission. Uh, it is a challenge to diagnose these uh, cases of people who have been inoculated or infected with virus but don't have symptoms yet. A, b a big barrier to knowing exactly who has uh, the coronavirus is, number one, it seems that we shed so little virus when we're asymptomatic that the diagnostic tests probably don't work all that great when we're completely asymptomatic. And number two, we don't have enough diagnostic facilities and tests to really test everyone who doesn't have symptoms but is wondering if they have been infected. Uh, and even we don't have enough facilities and tests to start testing people who have developed new symptoms that are concerning. And that's a changing variable because in my neck of the woods here in Nashville, Tennessee, we at my institution and others are, are working really hard to increase our capacity to be able to do testing. But right now, what we're generally advising people is to contact their healthcare providers if they have symptoms that are worrisome for this infection, which we've called COVID-19 and asking where they have testing facilities, trying to get an idea for what the wait times are, and trying to decide how the answer to that test is, gonna, is going to change behavior. I think for now, it's important for all of us to behave as if, even when we feel well, that we may be carrying this virus and may be able to transmit it. So we need to be engaging in social distancing and hand hygiene, et cetera, and if we get a mild illness, to be sure that we're um, sequestering, sequestering ourselves away, isolating ourselves away from others as, as much as we can, and trying not to burden the healthcare 
infrastructure like the emergency departments, urgent care clinics, and primary care clinics um, in person looking for a test unless um, we really think we'll need to be potentially in the hospital or, or get some other sort of direct care. But right now it's a big challenge. And a challenge, Ted, that the government um, is paying attention to and devoting some resources to. Can you share any developments on uh, additional funding or efforts to try and develop new tests or treatments? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> well, clearly everybody knows this is extremely fast moving and, you know, hour by hour, there's, you know, new news uh, nationally, internationally, or at the state and local level. Um, so at this point, um, the government is, you know, fully galvanized at the federal level, invoking, you know, laws that haven't been used in decades in order to try to address the shortages of things like um, ventilators, um, gloves, uh, uh, masks. In fact, the CDC has now put out guidance on uh, homemade masks because of the severe shortages. Um, the Pentagon is now involved. They are releasing um, masks and ventilators that they have stockpiled. So, you know, all, all parts of the federal government are, are galvanized around it. Um, the president, you know, recently declared a uh, national emergency, which um, enables uh, spending of roughly $50 billion uh, of emergency funding to go to the state and local governments to, to address uh, capacity issues. Um, in the national emergency as well, and this is more specific to um, patient Parkinson's patients access and care. Uh, he waived um, uh, a great number of rules and regulations around telemedicine. And so telemedicine through Medicare is going to be covered. Um, so you will be able to uh, see your doctor virtually if you and your physician have that capability. So. The recommendation there is check in with your your uh, healthcare provider to see if they have that uh, capability, um, because that would go a long way to continue to uh, have you not in the public, possibly exposed. Um, and you know the treatment, um, you know for regular check ins and things like that have been shown to be very um, effective. One thing I wanted to point out because we've been talking about age quite a bit, um, the CDC. Uh, did an analysis of cases from February 12th through March 16th. And the data suggests that um, younger people are pretty highly at risk. Uh, it showed that 38% of those sick enough to be hospitalized were under age 55. And um, as others have mentioned on here, you know, we all could be carriers, but we may not show symptoms. And, um, you know, uh, taking this seriously with, and, and maintaining the social distancing, avoiding going out in the public, things like that are critically important, you know, and the, and the government is telling us to do that. Um, and, and the response by governments, plural, differs, um, state, local, federal. Um, some states, frankly, have not galvanized very well and have minimized this um, disease. Uh, I would strongly encourage anybody to rely on, you know, CDC, HHS, you know, reputable websites that are based on science and try to avoid some of the mania that's going on in social media. Um, you know, that will help with your state of mind. Definitely, definitely. And um, CDC is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and HHS is the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So, um, we have covered a lot in this first slide, and we're going to talk more about things like telemedicine and social distancing a bit. I do want to move on and talk about how 
the coronavirus is impacting people with Parkinson's if they do um, contract the disease. And Dr. Lever, thanks for your patience. I want to bring you in here and curious how your patients have been reacting, what you've been telling them about the raised risk um, of contracting the virus, and if they do have symptoms or do have a test and test positive, what does that mean for people with PD? Yes, hi. As Dr. Tanner said, we don't think that Parkinson's disease in and of itself does increase the risk for contracting the virus. However, it is like other illnesses within this patient population, wherein if you contract an illness and you feel sick, you may notice a temporary change or worsening in your Parkinson's symptoms, whether those are the motor symptoms of tremor, whether they're the non-motor symptoms of anxiety. I mean, I think there's a lot of anxiety surrounding this anyway, but you may see this temporary increase in Parkinson's symptoms while you are feeling ill. But it's important to note that once you start to recover and improve, the Parkinson's symptoms that were worsened should return to baseline. And I tried to emphasize and reassure my patients that you know, if you see a change, it's not because the Parkinson's disease has been affected at basic level or that there's a sudden worsening and progression. It's more that you just need to be patient with things, give yourself some time to recover, and you should be back to baseline once you feel better from the, the viral symptoms. Let's focus just on the um, on getting the disease or and the experience if you do for a second, because I had a question come in on if you do contract the virus with Parkinson's disease, will it take you longer to recover because perhaps you're weakened from the Parkinson's? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's something I wanted to bring up as a reminder of how diverse our patient population is. As everyone knows, there's a huge spectrum of Parkinson's patients and disease manifestations. There are a lot of young people who are very healthy who also have Parkinson's disease. And in that, those cases, I would say no, you know, they're the same risk as the general population of young, healthy people. But I think once you start developing more advanced disease and you have some degree of fragility or, you know, you feel more weak, it may then take you longer to recover but that's similar to the flu or any other kind of bacterial illness. Understood. Um, and Dr. Tanner, anything else to add from what you've been seeing in your patient population or questions that your uh, people with PD who you see are asking? Uh, no, I, I agree with everything that's, that's been said. I think if you have Parkinson's disease and you get even a cold, uh, your symptoms can worsen, your fatigue can be greater, other, other features can can get worse for a period of time, but um, it's not permanent. It's during that, that period of time. And there's no reason to think that this particular illness would make your Parkinson's worse long-term. If you do have a, an issue with your Parkinson's disease, a, a serious symptom comes up, or you have a fall, for example, you know, we know people with Parkinson's are at increased risk for falls. What is the the safety or the guidance on seeking medical care? I think a lot of people are concerned about going to an emergency room and contracting coronavirus when they perhaps have a, a pretty serious non-related condition. Dr. Tanner, what would you tell your patients about that? Yeah, well, I would first of all say this is region by region. Um, so where I live right now, um, 
you know, everyone in the population is advised to, to shelter in place unless they're part of a, an exempt professional category. Um, the, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, and all the counties surrounding have that in place for, for a long time until the beginning of April. So I think it's very important to know the national but also the regional con situation and then be in touch with your local healthcare system or with your physician, your neurologist, your primary care doctor to get advice on uh, the best way to approach it. Our, our university has um, separate uh, respiratory screening clinics that have been set up at, at um, all of our hospitals that will handle uh, the coronavirus suspect cases and the regular emergency room, therefore, you know, is relatively protected from that so that people with other health emergencies can also be treated. So I think hospitals are working really hard to come up with ways to address this. There are, you know, constant meetings and uh, changing situations are taken into account. So the quick take-home is, so is that, I would say, check in with I'm your sorry. physician. Understood. Um, and Dr. Lieber, you had brought up the medications. If you do experience symptoms, you perhaps may want to take a cold or cough medication, but there actually could be some interactions with some Parkinson's drugs. Could you comment on that for us? Yes. I think as a general rule, we advise our patients to let us know as their physicians if they're going to be taking new medications. but Specifically, you know, I think this question comes up, which ones, which medications specifically, and when I talk about cough medicine, the exact compound that has an interaction is something called dextromethorphan. It's in a, a lot of these over-the-counter cough medicines. It's a cough suppressant, and that can have interactions with the commonly known drug Azelex or Risagiline, which I know a lot of our patients are on. It doesn't mean that you can't take dextromethorphan at all, but usually I advise patients to modify their Azelex, and every physician may be giving different advice, but I, because of this, I do advise people to call their physician and discuss it before taking an over-the-counter cough or cold medicine. And Dr. Aronoff, bringing you back in, there's been a lot of coverage and controversial reports around taking ibuprofen or NSAIDs and their potential worsening of COVID. Can you comment on that? Yeah, sure. I'd be glad to. These reports uh, came out of France. We don't have really any access to data to know um, really more about just what's been verbalized or put on social media that uh, apparently patients who either take drugs like ibuprofen, what we call non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs on a chronic basis may be an increased risk for severe COVID illness, or it may be that patients who are treating symptoms during the illness are at risk for worsened disease. Without data, it's really hard to know what to make of that. And my recommendation currently, which I think is shared by others, um, is not to tell people who are stable on those types of medicines to do anything different right now. Um, you know, the, the, the reason this can get very confusing is that people who don't feel well take these medicines. And the people who feel worse tend to be the most sick and they tend to take more of these medicines. And so it can look like the medicines themselves are 
causing the uh, illness to be worse when really it's a horse and buggy or horse and cart kind of issue where the the whole reason they were taking more of the medicines is that they were feeling worse. So it's hard to separate these. Um, and right now we really don't have a good uh, understanding of whether medicines like ibuprofen are to be avoided. In general, what I would tell people is uh, limiting the number of medicines that you add to what you're already taking is always a good idea. Um, when you're sick, it's a good idea to be engaged with a healthcare provider about any new medicines that you're wanting to take or a pharmacist, uh, for example. And that could be important for the use of medicines like ibuprofen, which that class of medicines can cause uh, harm to the kidneys, it can cause stomach ulcers. And so for people who already have chronic kidney problems or are at risk for stomach ulcers, those, those drugs may not be good for them regardless of the presence or absence of COVID. And so drugs like acetaminophen may be safer. On the other hand, acetaminophen can, can be associated with liver toxicity or hepatitis if taken uh, in, a, in abundance or given to somebody who has pre pre-existing liver disease. So I always say, you know, if if you're somebody who's chronically ill or you're already taking a lot of medications, that if you're going to add any new medicine, even for temporary symptom relief, it's good to run it past a pharmacist or your uh, healthcare provider first. Understood. And just to clarify, the acetaminophen is the brand name Tylenol over the counter. That's exactly Tylenol. right. Yeah. And it's a tricky one because acetaminophen is also, a, a drug that's used in a lot of combination medicines like NyQuil or Excedrin or Theraflu. And so it's important for, for patients to know if they may be getting you know, double doses of medicines like acetaminophen by looking carefully at the labels of some of these um, medicines that, co that contain mixtures. Got it. And as always, um, work with your doctor for your, your own individualized um, response or treatment. Uh, one more medication question before we move on, um, and Ted, I'll ask you to comment first, and others might have thoughts too. There's been a lot of concern among um, our viewers around p the shortage of, uh, potential shortage of the drugs that they commonly take for their Parkinson's from other Cinemet, their Azelect, their Amantadine. Um, you know, manufacturing and distribution chains may be disrupted because of the virus. Ted, what is going on with drug supply, and is the government doing anything in monitoring that? Yes, um, they, they definitely are monitoring it, and the FDA, <clears throat> that's one of its core functions is to, you know, determine whether there are shortages and, and work to address that. And I do think with all the emergency powers that the federal government has currently and other national governments that, you know, they seriously want to get a handle on that so that a really bad situation doesn't get even worse. Uh, the other topic related to that, though, is your own personal supply of medication. Um, I know that some people are concerned about whether they're going to be able to get to the pharmacy, um, and a lot of insurance plans don't allow you to uh, have more than a 30 or 60 day supply. Uh, a lot of those plans are now waiving that, allowing um, increased, um, you know, supply so that you don't have to leave the home. Many, many. Um, uh, pharmacies are now also offering free home delivery during this period. So if you've got concerns about these things, you should call your insurer to find out what their new policy is, or they might have it on their, on their website. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, 
check in with your pharmacy to see if they have free home delivery so that you don't actually even have to leave the house. Yeah, I think uh, everything is changing these days. So don't make any assumptions that you know how a policy uh, is structured because it might have changed even within the last hour or so. But, um, okay, let's move on to the next slide. We are going to show um, a visual that I'm sure many of us have seen this flattening the curve. And Dr. Arnoff, you commented before about um, you know, not pursuing potentially elective procedures or diagnostic tests if you don't truly need them at this time because the healthcare system is is being taxed um, very much so. Can you walk us through what we're seeing on the screen and how some of our protective measures might help uh, manage this uh, this pandemic? Yeah, sure. I'm delighted to. This is a really, I think, an elegant um, representation of what we hope to accomplish for public health good by having people be relatively isolated right now, and that's this concept of flattening the curve. And so what you're seeing here is this concept that we know a lot of people are going to get infected with this virus, and we've seen that play out in China and Korea and Italy, Europe, and now in the United States. It's so rapidly spreading. And if we assume that a significant proportion of those people that get infected are going to require health care, they're going to require coming to a health care uh, provider or a hospital or clinic, you could imagine that if everybody gets infected in a very brief amount of time, that that is going to absolutely overwhelm our capacity to care for patients um, in an optimal way. Things like running short on mechanical ventilators or even running short on reagents to test or medications to give our patients. So one of the best ways that public health can help prevent the number of cases from exceeding the healthcare system capacity, which is that dotted line on the chart, is to try to slow the spread, uh, even working from the assumption that the total number of people who get infected won't change, which we actually hope it will. But if it doesn't change, the idea is to put up roadblocks against the virus so that it cannot spread across the population quickly and that gives us in the healthcare system time to respond and be able to provide the best care we can to each individual person. And that's the flatter blue mogul, so to speak, on this graph is that if we're using protective measures, and this is all down to the individual level of staying at home, of using good hand hygiene, of not coughing onto your hands, of you know all the things that we talked about, that we may be able to, to slow down in a meaningful way the spread of this infection. Understood. And uh, Dr. Tanner, um, interested to hear from you first. You'd mentioned the San Francisco shelter in place. What is your university doing uh, in care and protective measures? Just curious from the front lines what you're seeing. Yeah. So what, what we have done is we basically um, converted our visits to um, remote visits. So. Uh, for people who have the capacity, uh, we're doing telemedicine visits. So I'm seeing people through a computer video evaluation um, and uh, able to do almost the complete exam actually for Parkinson's disease and then uh, make recommendations um, just as I would if they had come into the office for people who don't have that 
capacity, we are speaking with them on the telephone. Um, and this is a way of protecting everyone uh, so that they don't have to come out or go on, you know, public transportation or somehow, you know, expose themselves. Uh, as I said, there are also a, a lot of very careful precautions within the hospital and the medical center itself to separate out people who have symptoms and may possibly, you know, have a, a coronavirus infection from the rest of the people who need to come to the hospital for healthcare. So that's also happening. But for people who are just needing routine care for their Parkinson's, we're doing that all remotely right now. And I will say that, you know, this is one of the areas I've been working in in a research capacity for a number of years already. Um, even before coronavirus, we feel this is a really good way to provide care to people with Parkinson's disease because it minimizes the burdens of having to come into the hospital and see the doctor, which can sometimes be a whole day of your time and someone else's time to come with you. So it's not a complete change. It's just that we've converted our entire clinic to telemedicine as opposed to some of our visits. And for people with Parkinson's, even beyond this time, mobility is an issue. So perhaps telemedicine will continue to be more widely accepted. Um, uh, in the essence of time, I, I do want to move us forward um, and talk a little bit about other adaptations. We obviously just went into telemedicine, uh, and we've touched on some of these about referencing your, your doctor and your local and state health departments and um, national government organizations for the most useful and up-to-date sources of information. Uh, we've talked about checking with your insurance company or your government insurer and your local pharmacy about any changes there. Uh, I really want to focus now on caregiving and in-home care. A lot of people with Parkinson's uh, rely on others for assistance, whether it's someone in their family or a loved one or perhaps um, a home health aide. People with Parkinson's uh, may be living in assisted living facilities, and it's just not always possible to really maintain a six-foot distance from someone when you do need that, that level of care. So. Uh, Dr. Lieber, what are you telling people about foregoing or adapting uh, their their health aids and care in this time? Yeah, so I think it's really a case-by-case -case conversation and thought process. Overall, you have to think about risk mitigation, and there's going to be trade-offs between potential exposure and then real needs for continued help to maintain quality of your life and ability. So certainly having that conversation with your home health aide, asking them about their exposure risk, what they're doing to practice good hand hygiene, and then, you know, thinking about what what are my needs, but at the same time being realistic about if, if you do need to have this kind of care, you, you know, you need it. And so we, we are working with patients on a case-by-case -case basis. And Dr. Aronoff, what about people in assisted living facilities uh, who perhaps don't have as much power over their, their own um, environment or visitors? Uh, what would you tell someone in an assisted living facility or the loved one of someone who wants to look out for their family member? Yeah, this is a really big challenge and uh, I think as family members or, or patients at assisted living facilities, it's important to have conversations with the management of those facilities and get a transparent understanding of how they're 
dealing with this pandemic? So, for example, what are their policies and procedures for sending people home who have symptoms or have a known exposure to someone with COVID or themselves are diagnosed? Most facilities should have, by now, guidance and procedures for how they're handling that. In addition, it's going to be important to make sure that at the entrance to these facilities that they're uh, limiting visitors, if possible, to those who are essential for patient care or essential for the mental health or well-being of the, of the loved one, and that there's plans for how families can come and visit. And this may be a challenging time where young children are excluded from visits, and I think you're going to see that that's a facility-by-facility facility type of decision, but I think we should expect that facilities will have some guidance around who can visit, when they can visit. It'll also be important to make sure that there are proper uh, ways for patients, family members, and care providers to engage in hand hygiene. So whether there are sinks with good soap available for people, uh, which hopefully there are, and or good hand sanitizer to be used to be used as well, and that personal protective equipment like masks, for example, are available when needed, and, and when needed is going to be based on the infection control and infection prevention policies and procedures at each facility. But I think right now is a good time to have some conversations with the management at those facilities so that families feel comfortable that, that things are as under control as they can be in an environment where we're all sort of feeling like the definition of under control is changing every day. Yes, and uh, we spoke when we were preparing this about a sort of balance between um, isolation and the effects of that on, on Parkinson's and health and well-being and, and that protection from the virus. And so, Dr. Tanner, wanted to turn to you for these last two points that we see on the screen about um, about keeping uh, keep moving, keep uh, an exercise routine. And we tell people with Parkinson's that exercise is often as important as your medication, but with so many classes canceled and gyms closed, how can people, um, how can people maintain that, that physical exercise? Do they really have to stay in their home or can they go for a walk on their own? And then also the social isolation, the, uh, you know, the lack of, of socialization with others. And um, if you are not able to visit loved ones, what do you recommend for staying connected? So any thoughts on, on those two? Yeah, so obviously, maybe especially now, uh, maintaining your physical activity and maintaining connectedness with people um, is really important, even if it can't be, uh, you know, a physical touching kind of connectedness. So people can uh, work out at home, as you said. You can do, uh, you know, a lot. there are a lot of different exercise programs that people can do independently. Um, there may be classes that you can identify that are online, that you can be involved in um, video classes. Uh, some physical therapists even, um, you know, can go online and do a kind of a telemedicine sort of assessment. So those are all important. Even here in, in um, the Bay Area where we're told to shelter in place, Walking outside with six feet distance between you and other people is something that is uh, encouraged. And so getting sunshine, getting fresh air, getting out of your home and, you know, moving around, I think, is is critically important now. And will also help to relieve some of the 
you know, worries and fears and anxieties that are just almost inevitable uh, given the current situation. Um, the other thing is being able to maybe even have, you know, more being more proactive to reach out to friends, to reach out to family, to have uh, video chats or uh, FaceTime or Skype uh, so that you can actually see people even if you can't um, be necessarily with them all the time would be really important and trying to maybe schedule a little bit more than you would have at another point in your life uh, to be able to be sure that you're connected. Yes, it, it is nice that we have so much technology to allow us to be together apart. And um, I wanted to share with the audience that we are looking for your ideas and suggestions as well. We could probably have built the hour on adaptations and, and different ways that people are maintaining connectivity, connectivity, connectedness. Um, so uh, starting uh, next Tuesday on our social channels, on our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, we're going to be looking for ideas with the hashtag Together at Home Tuesdays and sharing your ideas more broadly with our community. So if you have found something inventive to stay connected or stay moving uh, amid this time, we're hoping that you are going to be sharing that with us over the coming weeks while we're all facing this together. Um, I did want to touch on one more topic before we turn to your questions, and that is how this time and this period of kind of a pause on a lot of our regularly scheduled uh, programming uh, will impact research. You know, we are the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research, and we're concerned with the efforts toward a cure and new treatments for people um, living with Parkinson's disease. We know that research is going to take longer to begin and complete, um, but we are doing everything that we can to move things as quickly as is possible from our end, understanding that a lot of the research is happening at academic medical centers who are devoting resources to care for people with this uh, virus and develop new treatments or companies who are looking out for their own employees. So um, Dr. Lieber, why don't you tell us at Mount Sinai how research has been impacted and what adaptations or postponements um, you all are pursuing? Yeah, so we here at Mount Sinai are trying to utilize the telemedicine option, just like we are with our clinical visits for the research component. There's still a way to move a lot of the research forward through the telephone or video visits. And then with some of the interventional trials, this is again a day-by-day -day decision, but on a limited basis, we are still seeing some patients for research that is sort of an interventional type trial where we need to see blood, but it, it probably varies drastically by institution. So make sure that you're checking with your study coordinator if you do have an appointment scheduled or if you're just interested in the status of a particular study or trial that you've been participating in. Um, Dr. Tanner, you are the principal investigator for our online study, Fox Insight. Why don't you talk a little bit about why it's still important for people to be contributing to Parkinson's research and how Fox Insight can help people do that from their own homes? Yeah, so this is a wonderful opportunity for people who aren't in Fox Insight to become involved with Fox Insight, and the, the website is right there. And um, this, this is a way to understand more about people with Parkinson's disease. It's already set up to be what we call, you know, a completely remote assessment. So um, there, are, there are kind of two aspects to it. One is the uh, 
longitudinal collection of information so we can understand the experience of a person with Parkinson's, but also people who are uh, connected to people with Parkinson's or people who just simply want to be supportive and uh, aren't personally that involved with Parkinson's. So pretty much anyone can come on to Fox Insight. Um, and we're very interested in knowing not just how you are today, but in knowing that um, over time so we can learn more about Parkinson's disease. And uh, we're also often focusing in on specific questions. So for example, um, there was a, a survey that tried to understand more about how Parkinson's disease affects uh, the economics uh, of healthcare. And that's something that will soon be coming out in publication, but uh, was able to take into account not just the sort of cash that's spent in the hospital, but also the the broader experience of what we call indirect costs, so the cost of people at home and of, you know, people living uh, with people with Parkinson's who may have to give up work time or pay for care partners. So I think there's many, many things that people can do that will help us understand more about Parkinson's, and it doesn't require going out at all. And if people are interested in joining Fox Insight and they're not already, it is also linked in the resource list that you see on your screen. And um, as Dr. Tanner said, the URL is there on, on your screen now. So foxinsight.org. I want to spend the last couple minutes answering some questions. Um, I apologize if our staff or panelists have not gotten to your question. We had many, many people join us, and we do get to as many as we can. But um, some that have come through that I think the audience might benefit from hearing uh, the answers to. Dr. Aronoff, is there anything someone can do to boost their immune system to help prevent contracting the, uh, the virus, something like taking probiotics or different vitamins? Yeah, boy, that's a really hot area, and we're all eager to know the answer to that question. Right now, we don't have a good answer that's specific for this virus. Our hope is that within the next 12 to 18 months, we'll have a specific vaccine, which will certainly boost our immunity against specifically this virus. But to our knowledge right now, taking any kind of vitamin supplements or probiotics may just have theoretical benefit, but nothing that's really been definitive or shown. And a lot of people are trying to start studies to look at that very issue. So it's certainly important, and I wish I had a better answer. Okay, so stay tuned. We'll share more if there are any definitive answers in that, uh, in that arena. Um, Dr. Lieber, a question on uh, if someone is a caregiver or a loved one of someone with cognitive impairment or dementia, any tips for explaining what's going on in the nation, if they're seeing the news or if their usual routine, their visitors, their appointments are not as scheduled or as they regularly expect it? What can you be telling someone with, uh, with cognitive issues? I think with these patients, it's important to speak in simple language as usual, but to give some reassurance that you are still there for them because they really will probably notice this complete disruption in their regular routine. So as much as you can sort of shift that routine into something new and do sort of a daily or, or consistent reorientation or repeating that, it, you know, this is sort of what's happening, those can be helpful to just reorient people who might have some cognitive impairment. Um, and Dr. Tanner, 
Uh, a question on breathing and swallowing problems. Um, I think people are just saying that because this is a respiratory um, a condition, the coronavirus, and because respiratory issues can also come with Parkinson's, that is swallowing or breathing problems, is there some sort of um, exacerbation of those, or could people expect to see those symptoms more frequently in the Parkinson's population if they do develop the virus? Yeah, so I think what, what Dr. Aronoff said before, a new problem uh, would be something to be of concern. People who have these problems because this is part of their sort of constellation of symptoms from Parkinson's disease, I don't think we have any reason to think they would be more vulnerable to uh, coronavirus per se. But if you already have a problem with swallowing or breathing or if you have, you know, some kind of respiratory problem, you probably want to be particularly careful if you then develop coronavirus, hoping, hoping that people don't develop it. And Dr. Aronoff, do you have any additional comments on that? No, that's that's spot on. I totally agree. And Dr. Tanner, one more for you. Some people um, with deep brain stimulation who were either planning to have the procedure or who perhaps have already had it and need to go in for programming, uh, what is the recommendation on either continuing to pursue that treatment or, uh, or having those uh, doctor's appointments to help with that treatment, DBS? Yeah, so that's, uh, again, a, a sort of case-by-case case and hospital-by-hospital hospital, uh, situation in our hospitals. Um, the surgical service is certainly in touch with everybody and people who have urgent needs, like people who need a battery replacement, uh, something like that, um, can be treated. Um, people who are, say, on the list for a surgery um, Maybe that will be postponed for a period of time. But again, every part of the country is different. We're kind of at the sort of the maximum, uh, I guess, e e epidemic phase at this point. So um, that's what's happening here. I think that what what is true is that your own hospital, your own medical center, your own surgeons and, and neurologists will be making plans that are appropriate with the condition where you are, and, and they will uh, work with you to make sure that you get the care that you need, but in the safest way possible. Okay, and one last question, um, Dr. Aronoff. I think a lot of people are wondering, when will we know it's safe to resume uh, you know, a perhaps new normal version of life? But say you, you know, want to visit your grandkids and you've self-quarantined for two weeks and you don't have any symptoms. You know, is that long enough or should we be waiting for the government to, to lift you know, the ban on, on some of these restrictions? How are we going to know when we can go back to the way things were? Well, I think that the answer is going to be different in different regions, as we've heard a little bit today. But I would really emphasize that it's important to listen to our local um, departments of health to tell us when the all clear has been made. It, your example is a really good one. I may be in my home for two weeks and feel perfectly good and then want to go and visit young children who themselves may feel perfectly good. But until we know that the epidemic is under control in that area, that other party, the little kids, they might be um, shedding virus. We just can't tell very well in, in these days where the virus is still in our community who might be contagious and who is not. So it's going to be an estimate 
but I, I would really look to our local healthcare, uh, public health sector to say businesses, when, when we start hearing businesses can reopen, restaurants can reopen, we no longer have 50% capacity rules. These kinds of things are going to be the way that we understand that the lid is coming off and we can come out of our little holes and start to act whatever that new normal is again. And if there's any questions, I think it's perfectly reasonable to call the Department of Health. Uh, they probably, most places, have a coronavirus hotline, which right now is probably pretty busy with all sorts of questions about should I be tested. But at some point, when the activity of, in the area is going down, it's reasonable to call those numbers and say, hey, do we have the all clear if you're not hearing it in the news? A lot of unknowns, but a lot of people working to, to get answers um, as quickly as possible. I want to give all of the panelists a, an opportunity to leave some parting words. We've covered a lot in the last hour. Again, I'm so grateful for your time and expertise. Uh, I know people are wondering about a lot that we were not able to get to, but perhaps we could just go through and um, you could each share a sentiment or a takeaway that you hope that the audience is leaving our call today with. So, Ted, why don't I start with you? Thank you. Um, I guess my parting comment would be to, you know, try not to panic and try not to get wrapped up in the hysteria that um, seems to be pretty pervasive out there. Um, we at the foundation, from a public policy standpoint, are doing everything we can to, um, you know, assess what's going on and to be, you know, helpful uh, from a policymaking standpoint. Um, so, but basically just, you know, ride this out and, and uh, try to, you know, focus only on reputable news sources, for example. Dr. Lever, any comments for our audience? I think that I just want to let people know that, you know, us as physicians are still very available for them through the phone and telemedicine. And my hope is that some silver lining that comes out of this is sort of a jump start moving forward with different types of availability for people who have mobility issues and it's really i think going to change a lot and some for the good so that's something we we can have hope for okay and dr tanner yes i i echo what uh ted and ted and uh, dr lever said too um i think that um being calm um recognizing that um there is help available and uh, that it will come from you can reach out to uh, community services. You can also reach out to your your physicians, healthcare professionals, and that um, there are a lot of uh, services being mobilized to help people who aren't able to get out or to get around. And um, I think as a community together, um, we're going to get through this. And Dr. Aronoff, last word is yours. Thank you so much. I 100% endorse everything the three other panelists just said. So I'll just uh, close by saying that it's a, an absolute honor to be able to be a participant in this panel with such wonderful uh, co-panelists. And I think the work of the Michael J. Fox Foundation to help inform the community is really vital and much appreciated. Thank you. And uh, as Dr. Tanner said, we're, we're really all a community. And so um, to our panelists today, thank you for your time and expertise. To everyone who joined us, I hope you found it beneficial and uh, and supportive during this time. And please look for more information on social channels, our website. Please share what you are doing uh, during this time, what you're finding helpful uh, over the next couple weeks. And just, um, yeah, have a great day and wash your hands. 
Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.